Welcome to the Merge Podcast. The Merge is the student ministry of the First Baptist Church in Barnwell, South Carolina. The mission of the Merge is to equip students to love God and His people. Here is student pastor Ryan Holtzclaw. Conclude that series. This is the final message. Um, this is number nine. And tonight we're going to be looking at the question, what will Jesus do upon his return? What will Jesus do upon his return? You can go ahead and flip in your Bibles to Revelation 19. That's where we're going to be at tonight. In 1968, Louis Armstrong recorded a song called, What a Wonderful World. The song was intended to be a cure during the 60s for racial and politically charged, for a racially and politically charged climate. You had the civil rights movement that was beginning to really take hold during that time. Vietnam was kicking off, and, and people were protesting that war. And, and so you had wars going on. You had hatred in the streets of America. Whites were going against blacks. And so in 68, Louis Armstrong releases this song, What a Wonderful World. It was a song that was supposed to be hopeful and optimistic. And it was supposed to give hope for the future. And it gave, even in the song, a lyric gives references, a reference to babies being born into the world and having much to look forward to. But there was war going on. There was fighting in the streets. There was a world that was out of complete and total control. A world that was chaotic. You know, life can be that way. Life can be chaotic. Life can seem way out of control sometimes. My senior year of high school was a really tragic year for our rival school, D.W. Daniel High School. Daniel um, had been Seneca's rival for, for many years. Uh, it was kind of like uh, we always ended up uh, facing them for the region championship or the uh, upstate championship and stuff in just about every sport. But anyway, uh, some of my best friends were at Daniel High School. And, um, uh, but that year uh, was a really tragic year. It was 1994. <clears throat> it was the uh, November of 1994 when uh, Daniel High School experienced a very tragic loss. They, they lost one of their sophomore young men and uh, just imagine if one of your friends, if you got up tomorrow and you found out that one of your best friends was killed in a car accident, and uh, just kind of the shock that that would take on you. And, and that's what happened at Daniel High School in 1994. In January, as a matter of fact, January 29th, a Sunday night in 1995, just a few months after they lost one young man, uh, another young lady was killed in a car wreck, again, a sophomore from Daniel High School. Uh, this one hit a little close to home because she was one of my best friends. And uh, she was killed tragically. Um, I found out the next day 
and uh, it broke my heart. Um, it, it really did. It, it, just, it just absolutely broke my heart. And um, a young life, she was an adopted young lady, and uh, on her way home from a, a Super Bowl party, the San Francisco 49ers were playing the San Diego Chargers that year in the Super Bowl. I'll never forget it. And uh, uh, she was on her way home. Her and her, the girl she was riding with hit a patch of ice, and uh, she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. She went straight out the front window and hit a tree, killed her instantly. Three days later, my best friend, Jodon, and I were on our way to Clemson uh, to pay our respects to the family of my best friend. And when we pulled up to the funeral home, we... Um, there was police lights everywhere and an ambulance and uh, didn't know what was going on. Found out later that another sophomore from Daniel High School who was on his way to pay his respects to uh, his friend was tragically ran over and killed. And uh, so in about a four to five month time period, they lost three of their friends, three of their students. Daniel's not a big school. Matter of fact, it's about the size of Barnwell. And... Um, it's a 3A school, uh, but as far as size goes, school-wise, it's a very tight, close-knit community uh, right there in Clemson. All the professors, kids, and stuff like that go there. Anyway, it devastated the people in the school, and, and it left people, it left me wondering why in the world would God just take my friend from me? I struggled with it. Her best friend, this girl named Lee Biggers, uh, Lee and I were very, very close, and, and I had to comfort Lee and try to answer questions that I couldn't really even answer. Life was just really chaotic for them. They were bringing in psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, whatever. They were bringing in doctors, counselors to, to help talk to them, to help work through their emotions and their feelings. Life was just really chaotic for them. You know, I realized during that time that um, that song, well, that, that time in my life caused me to realize that uh, this world is just not so wonderful. There are days that this world is just brutal. You know, there's some days on earth that just simply stink, as a matter of fact. And the other days... On earth, they really stink. No matter what that stupid song says, this is not a wonderful world. Life sometimes, life a lot of times, just doesn't seem to be that great. And in those times, we truly realize that the world definitely isn't wonderful. You know, some people, they can't understand why so many bad things happen all around us and in our personal lives. But reality, and the Bible tells us that it occurred when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. And, and since that time, the world has just been in chaos. And, and until Jesus returns to fix everything, until Jesus comes back to fix everything, to restore harmony and peace the way that it needs, was originally intended 
then the feces will continue to hit the fan every day all around us. Scripture repeatedly states that Jesus will suddenly one day return. Matter of fact, Matthew, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says he will come back like a, a streak of lightning. It'll happen so fast. We don't know when he's going to come back. We don't know what hour he's going to come back. But we do know that Jesus is going to come back. And so the question that we're going to look at tonight is, what is he going to do when he comes back? What will Jesus do when he comes back? Matthew 24, 30, it says, At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The first thing Jesus is going to do when he comes back is he will establish himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you would, look with me, please, in Revelation. Jump over to Revelation 19, and uh, let's start with verses 11 through 13. Revelation 19, let's look at verses 11 through 13. This is John talking. Remember, John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's fallen asleep, and, and he begins to have these dreams, these visions from God. God lifts him up into heaven, and he starts revealing and showing him these things that are to come. And so this is part of that vision. This is part of that prophecy about what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. So the first thing is this. Jesus will restore himself as the king of kings. Verse 11 in Revelation 19 says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. As John gazed into heaven, he first saw a white horse. Here, the rider is a ruler who comes from heaven. The rider, who we will later see is Jesus, he's not coming back to take his people with him. He's already taken some of them with him. That's a whole different story of Revelation. He's already come back and he's called up all of the believers and now they're with him. And, and so this time he's not coming back to get people. This time he's coming back to conquer the kings of the earth and establish his rule and authority over the entire earth. The white horse here is a sign of Jesus' coming triumph. It was customary uh, during these days, because Rome ruled over everything, and and you know how you know how when like Super Bowl happens, they uh, like this past year when the Saints won the Super Bowl, right? Just a couple of days later, what did they do? They had a huge party and they paraded them down, uh, whatever it's called, in New Orleans. Not Bourbon Street. It's not big enough. Bourbon Street's about the size of this. I've been there. Anyway, they have this huge parade. Anytime you are triumphant, they have a parade for you, right? If y'all ever win a state championship in something, we'll probably have a parade for you. What? 
See, the white horse here is a sign because it was customary during that time when a Roman soldier, when a Roman general would have conquered, he would come back and he would be riding his white horse and he would ride it down the main street of Rome. This is the sign, the symbol that we get here. The white horse. The triumphant victor would come and he would be followed by evidence of his victory in the form of treasures and captives. The white horse is thus a symbol of victory. It's a symbol of Christ's coming triumph over the forces of wickedness in the world. John goes on to say that he sees the horse's rider and that he is called faithful and true. For as John declared, with justice he judges and makes war. His intense judgment of sin is indicated in the words, his eyes are like blazing fire. And his right to rule is evidenced by the many crowns he is wearing. Written on him is a name that no one but himself knows. This suggests that that Christ is indescribable. He is dressed in a robe that is dipped in blood. And this is symbolic to a later reference made to a wine press. See, a wine press is a device. They still use them today. But it's a device that you take the grapes or whatever your berries that you're making wine with, and you put them into this wine press, and it squeezes the juice out of them. And the Bible says that when Jesus returns, and as you're going to see, when he starts judging the unbelievers, and he starts crushing those that are opposed to him, when he starts taking them out, those who are against him, that he'll squeeze them like, like you would a grape, and he'll smash them, and their blood... Their blood will splatter on his robe. That's the symbol there about the blood-splattered robe. That is the sign of his enemies. Guys, when he comes back in this form, he's not coming to be nice. He's coming to pour out God's wrath on everybody who is against him. Revelation 19.13 goes on to say that his name is the Word of God. The Word of God is one of the familiar names of Jesus in Scripture. John 1.1, 1-14, it talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Just as we reveal our minds and our hearts to others through our words, So also God reveals himself to us through his son. He made Jesus flesh. He made the word become flesh in the form of Jesus. A word is made up of letters from the alphabet. And Jesus Christ is described as the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. The word of God is living and powerful What more? It fulfills his purpose on earth. The rider here is Jesus, and he's returning to the earth in glory. He's coming back to establish himself. He's coming back to conquer anybody that's against him. And he's bringing an army with him. We read in Revelation 19, look at verses 14 through 18. 
14 through 18. It says, the armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. The drama, the drama of this scene is further enhanced here with this multitude of this army that Jesus has already called up, and they're coming with him. They're riding on white horses. They too are dressed in fine white linen and clean clothes. He's not alone in his conquest. But the reality is, he didn't even need them. He didn't need his army. It was just a symbol of his power and his greatness. He didn't need them. Because the Bible says that from his mouth came a double-edged sword, which refers to the word of God. It says in Christ's mouth was a sharp sword, which he would use to strike down the nations. The sharp sword is a symbol of God's word. The word here for sword describes an unusually long sword that would sometimes be used as a spear. And, and, and it says that with the word of God, with this spear, with the word of God as his, as his power, Jesus will use it to strike down anybody that gets in his way. It says that he will rule with an iron scepter. The iron scepter here is a symbol of the justice that Jesus will use as he rules over the earth. Christ is also described here as one that treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So we find out that Jesus is the one who treads the winepress. Jesus is the one that will be doing the judging. It says he has written on his robe and on his thigh, King of King and Lord of Lords. And this symbolizes Jesus' power. His greatness and his ability to destroy anyone that gets in his way. Guys, he's not coming back this time to be killed. This time he's coming to make an example of his enemies. The second thing that Jesus will do is he will defeat the armies of the kings of the earth. Revelation 17 through 19, it says, and I saw an angel, this is John, I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. It's saying right there, Jesus has struck them down, okay? He has struck down his enemies, they're just spread out everywhere. They're dead. And an angel calls down on birds to come and eat them. Vultures. To come and eat the enemies of God. Verse 19, then I saw the beast. 
and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed. And the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on the flesh. You see, these warriors, warriors of Satan, they've assembled and they're coming to fight against Christ. They're coming to fight against him and his army. But their weapons are pointless. Jesus doesn't need them. This is, this is the well-known battle of Armageddon, all right? They've all gathered. They've all gathered to come and, and to, to fight against God. This is the battle of Armageddon. And, and Jesus just lashes them down with the word of God, and they die. The battle turns out to be a slaughter. It turns out to be a supper for vultures. The next thing that Jesus will do, he will defeat the beast and the false prophets. Revelation 19 verse 20 says, But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Since Satan's henchmen are the leaders of this revolt, it's only right that when they're captured, they are the first ones that are thrown into hell. They are cast into the lake of fire, the final and permanent place of punishment for all who refuse to submit to Christ. The beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are the first persons to be cast into hell. Satan will eventually follow them about a thousand years later. He will be joined. They will be joined by whose names are not recorded in the book of life. Jesus will defeat the beast. He will defeat the false prophets. Jesus will defeat Satan. Revelation 20, 1 through 3, it says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. He must be set free for a short time. The bottomless pit spoken of in Revelation 21, this is not hell. This is just like a holding area, okay? When you, when you die, if you die and you don't know Christ, you go to this holding area called Hades. You're separated from him. That's where you go when you die and you don't know Christ. If you die and you know Christ, you immediately go into his presence. Satan goes to this holding area. He's chained up. He's held there for a thousand years. Saints rule the earth for a thousand years. But after a thousand years, guess what people do? Even though there is no Satan, Satan is bound up. 
He's not there to tempt them. He's not there to cause them to do bad. You know the little thing that Satan made me do it? The devil told me to do it? That's a bunch of bull crap. You did it. Because Satan is bound up. And these people, they still revolt against God. They still turn their back on him. They're living in peace and in harmony. And they still turn their back against God. And when that happens, Satan then, he is released. And he tries to gather all of those that have rebelled against God. And guess what happens? They're crushed. Satan is cast into the lake of fire. And after Satan is cast into the lake of fire, Jesus then judges the unbelievers. It says in verse 22, I'm sorry, it says in verse 11 of chapter 20, And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. No, let me tell you something. Just to stop here for a second. This, this is an image of, of sin for you and for us, okay? You see, when you sin, you think you can hide that sin. You think that you can, you can uh, kind of pretend like it never happened. But it says right there that, that there is no place to hide. You see, you can't hide from God. And, and in the last days, with all these people that think that they're so great and good and, and that they've done all this great stuff and they'll be able to get into heaven because of this great stuff that they've done, well, their sins will really come out on this day. And, and if you don't believe in Christ, you're going to be made known that day. I don't care if you found a cure for cancer. If you don't know Christ, you're going to be found out that day. If you are a hypocrite and you come here and you play church, and you play, you play like you can, you, you, you are the greatest Christian that's ever stepped foot in Barnwell, guess what? You're going to be found out on this day. On this day, it ain't going to matter. Because it says that even the earth and the sky, they can't hide from him. You ain't going to hide from him. Verse 12 says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone's name, anyone whose name was not found, recorded in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. Guys, this is not, there will not be anybody, there will not be anybody here will not be anybody here during this time who believes in Christ. You see, when you're a believer in Christ and you die, during the second coming, Jesus sits on that white throne. He doesn't judge you. He rewards you. He rewards you for what you've done for him and in his name. But the dead, the unbelievers, yeah, you're judged. And so 
everybody that goes around and they say, well, you can't, you can't judge me for that. that. That's not your responsibility. You can't do that. Well, guess what? Jesus can. Because, because he's, already, he's already proven that he's the greatest. Remember, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and if you don't want us judging you for what you do, then, then he will. And I dare you to tell him he can't judge you. Of course, by this point, it ain't going to matter. Jesus. Like I said earlier, today, when an unbeliever dies, his spirit goes to a place called Hades. And uh, there he waits. And here we get this image of this second resurrection of them being lifted into heaven and they're, they're judged. The judge is Jesus. The book of life, your name better be written in it. When the judgment is finished, all of the lost, everybody whose name is not in that book, you'll be cast into the lake of fire. You'll be cast into hell. Now, there's some people that are out there that will say, well, hell, that's just kind of like a figurative figure of speech. That's, that's not a real place. How could a good God create hell and send people there? Well, the reality is God didn't send you there. You did. And the reality is, is he, did, he did create it. And he created it for those that deny him. He's not sending you there. You are. So you want to know if you meet the qualifications for hell? You want to know? You want to know if you are living up to that standard, that if you were to die right now, you would go to hell? Let's look at it. Revelation 20, verse 8, it says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So the first thing that we see here is this. The unbelieving will be in hell. Anyone who fails to accept Jesus as their Lord, to accept that he died on a cross, anybody that, that refuses to accept the forgiveness that he offers, they will be in hell. It says the vile or the wicked, the vile, the wicked, the evil, they will be in hell. Anyone who has never accepted the forgiveness of Christ and leads a life of evil deeds, rebellion against God and wickedness, they will be in hell. Murderers will be in hell. Anyone who has never accepted Christ's forgiveness and has taken another person's life will be in hell. The sexually moral will be in hell. Anyone who has never accepted Christ's forgiveness and is living a life of homosexuality, if you're having premarital sex, you're committing adultery, you're partaking in any form of sexual impurities, and you've never been forgiven by Christ, you will be in hell. Those who practice black magic will be in hell. Anyone who has never accepted Christ's forgiveness and still practices this demonic magic will be in hell. All of the characteristics are true of the people who followed the beast or the antichrist. So anyone that practices magic like voodoo and junk like that, that stuff's real. And anybody that practices that and they've never been forgiven by Christ, they're going to hell. Anyone who worships idols will be in hell. Man, that's, that's the second commandment. 
You can't have any other idols. If you worship sex and you've never been forgiven, you've never accepted Christ, you're going to hell. If you worship cars, if you worship money, if you worship power, if you worship popularity, if you worship yourself, and you've never asked Christ to forgive you for it, you've never accepted him, there's not a change in your life, you're going to hell. There will be liars in hell. Anyone who has never accepted Christ's forgiveness and tells lies will be in hell. Will you be in hell? Will you be in hell? The last thing is this. Jesus will bring peace. Verses, chapters 21 through the end of 22 of Revelation, it talks about this peace that Jesus will bring upon the earth. You know, when God created the world, he created it in a perfect and harmonious beauty. It was something that the Hebrews described as shalom. It was perfect peace. Everything was in its proper order. And God created the first man and the first woman. He created them in his image. He created them to worship him and to take care of his creation. But yet they got selfish and they, they turned their back on him. And so when that happened, that just messed up everything. And, and so the reality is this, no matter how many wars we fight, no matter how much money we spend or discoveries we make, the truth is, is that there will never be a true peace on this earth. There will never be true shalom on this earth until Jesus Christ returns. Isaiah, the prophet, talks a lot about this peace. He refers to Jesus as the prince of peace. And so in shalom, the best young men will never have to bleed out on a battlefield ever again. In shalom, Jesus will ensure that the oppressed and the poor will receive justice. The poor will be cared for. The wicked will be punished. Animals will live at, a, a, at peace with each other and with humans. The entire earth will be filled with knowledge of the one true God. Jealousy will cease. Weather will be made glorious. And all nations will sing together in harmonious joy. Your deeds and your actions will finally be recognized when everything is in shalom. But unfortunately, not everybody will be there. When Jesus returns, what will be your fate? Will you spend heaven with him? Will you spend eternity with him in heaven? Or will you spend eternity in hell? What will be your fate? Guys, if you... I, I can't tell you enough, man. I can't tell you enough. You, the, the ultimate penalty for, for sin is death. You know that. You've heard that a million times. You've heard this kind of message a million times. 
You've heard pastors talk about hell over and over and over. And the reality is, is that you're probably becoming numb to it. But I guarantee you, if you never make that decision, if you never, ever come to know Christ as your Savior, when you die, you definitely won't be numb, especially to hell. It's a real place. And people are going there. That's, that's something to think about. You know, it doesn't matter what you've done in life. It doesn't matter the bad decisions that you've made. Christ can forgive you. You have this moment to be forgiven. You have this moment to ask him to become your savior. And, and what that means is, it means he saves you from being lost. He saves you from making chaotic decisions. He saves you from destroying your life. He saves you and he makes you right with God. And I've told you this all year. He doesn't want to take your, I can't play anymore card. He just says, hey, some of this stuff that you want to play with right now, I just want you to wait. I just want you to wait. It's not that, that I don't want you to enjoy life. I want you to enjoy life and enjoy it to the fullest. But I want you to enjoy it when it's not going to hurt you. And in some cases, end up killing you. That's all he wants. Because he loves you. Man, I, I, have, I have family members that have absolutely destroyed their lives making horrible decisions. I see people your age all the time, and they've just made awful decisions with their life, and they just don't have a relationship with God. And, and that, you know, is that going to keep you from being unhappy all the time? No. Because there is hard times even when you're a Christian, but you deal with it differently. You deal with those moments differently. When you're, when you're a Christian, instead of running straight to sin, you try to stay away from it. And you, and you, just, you just wait. And you're patient. And, and, and you allow things to take place in its proper time. Guys, if you've never made that decision, this is your moment. Every, everything happens in a moment. You die in a moment. You get pregnant in a moment. You get that first kiss in a moment. The first date, that first guy or girl to ask you out. Everything happens in a moment. And this is your moment. If you don't know him, this is your moment. Because if, if we read Matthew and Daniel, and some more of Revelation, I could show you that we're not far from him coming back. And more than that, you're only one breath away from death. This is your moment. Band's going to come up. They're going to do one more song. And this is it. This moment will come and it will pass. It's what you do with it 
That's what matters. If you want to come up here and just pray, man, come up here and pray. I love watching you guys pray. It's awesome. If you've got stuff on your heart, exams coming up, junk like that, man, come up here and lay them at God's feet. But if you don't know him and you want to talk to somebody, I'm going to be sitting right here on this step like I do every week. I'd love to talk to you about your relationship with Christ. And if it ain't right, I'd love to point you how to make that right. Let's pray. Blessed Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to stand before these students to proclaim your greatness in your name, Lord. Thank you, Father, for giving us scripture that tells us, God, what we've got to do to be restored in, in your eyes. Thank you, God, for providing uh, words that guide us along the way, that help us, God, to be able to look directly at you. Father, my prayer right now is that this moment does not pass. That these teenagers sitting in here, God, that don't know you, God, they will just grab a hold of this moment. That, that they will allow you to step into this chaotic world that we call life, God. And allow you to pull them out. And to hug them. And to tell them, God, that you are the better way. And that some of this stuff that they're wanting to do right now, they'll just wait. They'll just wait that you have that right guy for them or you have that right girl for them. They just need to be patient and wait. That you'll give them something better than they could ever imagine. I just impress that upon their heart. Amen. Okay, I want to just say something really quickly. Um, those of you who were at the school, at the high school today, we had honors and awards day and stuff, and there was a bird trapped in the gym. And if you were there, it was really quite funny. Um, but what kept running through my head, I promise, I thought this, I'm not just trying to make it all big and dramatic now, but kept, what kept running through my head is that doggone bird would get so close to that door. That open door, the end of the gym, he would fly around, he'd fly up on the stage, he'd fly across people, and then he would get so close to that door, and as soon as he got to it, he would turn and, and fly up in the rafters again and keep flying in circles. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, we're looking at that bird and we're thinking, you idiot, the door is right there, it's right there, just fly out. You know, you've been in the gym for two days now. But, you know, I'm thinking... Like, let's look at that from a God perspective, and how often are we that bird? You know, like, God looks at us, and there's that open door, and he's offering it to us, and he's saying, come share your life with me. Come be a part of me. Let me into your life. Let me be everything to you. Let me be all you need. And we're just flying in circles, like that stupid bird, and the door is right there, and we're just ignoring him. And that's, that's on a salvation point, too, you know, like, when you first accept Christ, um, or you're deciding to accept, to accept Christ, are you flying in circles? But even beyond that, like, you may be a believer, but there's this one thing that you just can't let go of. This one problem you can't let go of, this one sin you can't let go of, this one um, issue you can't let go of. And God's just saying, let me take over. I can take care of you. The door's right here. Just let me take care of you. Um, I just want to leave you with that thought because that, that's something that hit me today pretty strongly about that.
Yeah. And don't run into the fan. That'd be the worst thing you could do. Thank you for listening to the Merge Podcast. For more information about the Merge Student Ministry, please go to www.mergestudents.com.